During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday morning, and I'm <laughs> trying to efficiently transact business. Uh, today is the 5th of Nisan. I promised uh, my good friends, uh, Levi Lali Friedman, uh, that today is the guard uh, side of their father. Levi's father, Gachmiel Friedman. If you're from Baltimore, you know who I'm talking about. This was from the old group of the Balabakim that came here, who already knew how to learn very well, and really transformed Baltimore. That's a whole story by itself. That whole uh, new element. What makes uh, Baltimore, I won't say unique, because how do I know? But what's more interesting is not necessarily the rabbis, but the uh, Balabakim. You, know, you have learned Balabakim over here, which is just something very interesting. And uh, Levy's father certainly was a big example of that. Now, um, as I, if I committed myself to do something today on the 5th of the East, which I'm happy to do, especially with the corona business going on, that we were all stuck and going out of our minds. And uh, indeed, I don't think when Levy mentioned this to me, he knew that this is going to have to take the place of St. Cottage, where in a crazy situation, that uh, people can't say Kaddish because no minions. You you read the news like I do. Even Israel, even Rechama Kanievsky now came out against minions. So, and Bar Park seems to be coronavirus central. So, you know, we're living in crazy times. So, make a long story short, the uh, question is who was I going to speak about today's yard site? And uh, I sent me a bunch of names. And for some reason, I got focused on, it's sort of like a divining rod. On the Ksaba Kabbalah, who I think is today or tomorrow. Um, and that's what I want to speak about this morning, because there's somebody I don't think most people know about, and I myself feel guilty about it, because I don't use the Sefer much, once in a while. Uh, you know, there used to be an old-fashioned style of Magidim, the guy would get up and say like this, I'm going to speak to myself, I'm going to criticize myself, if it happens to apply to anybody else, it says Derek Agav, it's an old-fashioned way of talking. So today I can, re- I can truly say that. Uh, and you'll see what I mean in a second. We're talking about somebody who was a rabbi. It, it, it's, it's, every person is interesting, and every era is interesting in history. That's a famous line from the German historian Ranke. Uh, each epoch is, is immediate to God. But if you're Jewish, which is what we're doing, so for sure every different Jewish epoch and era is interesting in its own way. In every geographical place and time is interesting. So that's just who we are. And in this case, we're dealing with somebody whose name was Rabbi Yaakov C. Mecklenburg, who lived from 1785 to 1865. So that's you're talking about the early part of the 1800s, 19th century. But lives in a very, very specific and unusual and interesting context. 
In order to understand that, you have to pay attention for a minute. As you know, if you've ever been listening to me, at least, there used to be a place called the Kingdom of Poland, which is where most of the Jews lived. It was the number one Jewish community in the world, well over 50% of Jewish people, uh, both in quantity, the number one center of the Jews in the world, and in quality, in Judaism, in Torah scholarship, and all that kind of stuff. The kingdom of Poland I'm talking about then is much bigger than the country of Poland today. And it's equal to, and I've said this over and over again, you're talking about a, a kingdom that was the size of Poland and Ukraine and Belarus and Lithuania and Latvia. That's pretty big when you put it all together. Now, what happened to that place? Well, it was destroyed or swallowed up by its neighbors. Why? Because they could get away with it. Because <laughs> they can. It was raped because they could. This is famous, called the Three Partitions of Poland in the 1700s. The three countries, for a whole bunch of reasons that I'm not going to go into now, it's not time for a, an extra lecture. But for a whole bunch of reasons, Poland was weak, and it's their own fault. And the three neighboring countries simply decided in 1772, let's each just snatch a piece of karka from Poland and add it to our lands. Because we can, Poland can't do anything about it. And so it was the Empress of Russia, the King of Prussia, and the Empress of Austria. Uh, Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia, and Maria Therese, the Empress of Austria. And so the Austrians took a chalik called Galicia, and the Prussians took a chalik called uh, West Prussia, or what you call Danzig today. Uh, and the Russians took a big chalik, like I say, the Ukraine or White Russia, whatever. Fine. But then... Once they, that happened in 1772, and they got away with it. Because who's going to stop? And there was no United Nations, there was no America, there was England and France, and for that, for a whole bunch of reasons, in 1772, they simply were not strong enough to take on a combination of Prussia, Austria, and Russia. Nobody wants to do that. And so they got away with it. You know, his expression in Yiddish, mit essen kommt appetit, which means once you start eating, you realize you have an appetite. And so these three countries eventually said, it took them a little while, from 1770, took them 21 years. And in 1793, they said, let's do it again. And again, Prussia took a chalik, and Russia took a chalik, Austria not for certain reasons. And that left Poland much smaller than it had been. And then in 70, 1795, they said, out of heck with it, let's take the whole damn thing. And so they did, nobody could stop them. And this time it was a three-way division, and Prussia took a big part, a very big part of Poland. Russia took the gigantic part of Poland. And Austria took the remainder, what we call Lublin. So by the time you finish, in 1795, the area that had been called the Kingdom of Poland ceased to exist. Instead, it was divided up. Part of it was ruled by Russia, part of it was ruled by Austria, and part of it was ruled by Prussia. Okay, that's the story of Polish Jewry. So this area, which was the Iker Mokum Yiddishkeit in the world, underwent a profound transformation, not for the better for the Jews, but that's what happened. And all of a sudden they found themselves, these Jews, which was the largest Jewish community in the world, and the only community in the world that had a baby boom. And so the population was growing and growing and growing, the Jewish population, very much so, all during this time and in for the next hundred years, uh, unlike Jewish communities elsewhere. And they found themselves no longer in Poland per se, but Poland didn't exist. Poland was part of you know, the, the, the three countries that took it over. Now, as far as the Jews are concerned, this had profound consequences. 
And that's why the Galatianers are different than the Litvaks and so on and so forth, because each one was ruled by a different country and subjected to their culture. So the ones who lived in the Russian Empire was more or less Russianized. The ones who lived in Galicia, they tried to Germanize them. And the ones in Prussia, they doggone well did Germanize them. That's the reason I mentioned this. So when you tell me your parents are from Eastern Europe or Poland, I know it sounds sunny and confusing, but it really does matter. Where are they from? When did their family leave? Where you, you know, this and that and the other. It's, a, it, 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 it's what it is. Uh, just to give you an example, I'm, well, you'll see in a minute. Now, I'm not going to devote my attention today to the Galicianers, because that's not where our hero lived. And I'm not going to devote my attention today to the other part of Poland, uh, Ukraine, Belarus, Central Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, the part that was under the Tsars of Russia, because that's not where our hero lived. Rather, I'm going to refer to the smaller part of Poland that was taken over by Prussia. And without getting into too many details, you had the Napoleonic Wars by the time it's over, by the time you get to 1815, uh, the final borders were settled for 100 years. It's a long time. And uh, what we call Prussia today, which is the German kingdom, had a ganze chalik of western Poland, what they call Posen. Okay, what they call Posen, the, the, the province of Posen. So really, Posen should be a, German, uh, a Polish city, but after the period I'm talking about, is it's under the Germans, the Prussians specifically. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about Russia, I'm talking about Prussia. And there used to be a place called Germany, but it wasn't a country. Germany was a collection of states. It didn't become a country until much later, in 1870. And the time I'm talking about, the area that you and I call Germany was uh, 35, 45 states. There was this kingdom and that kingdom and this republic and that republic. And the largest of them was the kingdom of Prussia. So that's in the eastern side of Germany, if you know what I mean by that. If you look at the map, it's on the right side. But don't look at a map today because everything has changed. And after the Second World War, for a whole bunch of reasons, this whole area was subtracted from Germany and is currently in Poland. So every place I'm talking about today is no longer in a country called Germany. Today, rather, it's in a country called Poland, whose borders were radically transformed after the Second World War by Stalin. And he gave him a sex change operation. And he just completely discompobulated the old borders of Poland and created a Nyazach in which he took a big chalik of the areas I'm talking about, uh, Prussia and uh, Silesia and so forth, and gave them to the new country of Poland, where Stalin himself took a lot of things that had been on the right. So it really was a, a radical anatomical operation. But if you know your history, at the time I'm talking about, in the late 1700s, especially in the 1800s, these areas were Polish, but they're ruled by, by, by Prussia. Now, why am I giving this whole big disquisition? If you're Jewish, the, the impact was very interesting because the Prussian government had now a bunch of t territories that they took over, but the people who lived there were not German, were not Prussian. Uh, they're Polish, Polish Goyim, and Jews. Right? That's what we had over there. The Prussians didn't like that. They want everybody to be German. You get it? You know, it's a natural understanding. But how do you do that? They never worked it out well with the Polish Goyim. That's a long story by itself, and it was a lot of tension and problems for the Germans and the Poles in that area of the world, in East Prussia and in, and in Posen. But the Jews, um, they're not in love with Polish. They're just used to being Polish. So the government was more successful over the course of time in Germanizing these people. So today... You'll find families 
they come from that area, from uh, from where we're going to be talking about today, Posen and Königsberg and so forth. They're yekas, and they hold themselves to be yekas, and they talk R, but not really. They're Polish Jews, and you, you understand what I'm saying? They're Polish Jews, and, uh, you know, they were yekiized, you know, they were Germanized in the 1800s. In Baltimore, Maryland, we have a show called the, the, the German show, the, the Glen Avenue show, Sheriff Israel, which really is a combination of two minions back in the 1800s. One of them was real yaki, 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 like from the, what shall I say, from Western Germany, Bavaria and those kind of places. And the other minion was from um, Eastern Germany, from Posen, which really, they're Polish. And so it depends how you call yakis. All I'm trying to say is if you're a historian and your interest is sort of Michigas, you can really trace down where everybody's ancestry is down to a final T. Okay, with that long arichas, I'll get to the story. We're, because we're talking about somebody who was born in 1785, which is in the middle of the process I just described. I told you the first partition of Poland was in 1772, and the other ones were in 1793 and 1785. Excuse me, oh, 1793 and 1795. So if you're born in 1785, in this area of the world, then you're born in Poland, but little as you grow up, it becomes ruled by Prussia. Now, the effect over here that I'm discussing has to do with what, is, what was the impact of Prussia and Prussianization and Germanization upon the Jews in this particular part of Poland. Okay? Now, I'll tell you one distinction that this area of Poland has from the other areas of Poland. Zero Hasidus. The Hasidic movement over the course of the 1800s, eventually penetrated everywhere, even into Lithuania to a small degree. But certainly all throughout Poland, as you know, all throughout Galicia, the Hasidic movement, all throughout Ukraine, all throughout Belarus, that's the Lubavitch and places like that. Uh, but not in the Western part that I'm talking about, because the Prussian government wouldn't allow any funny-looking Jews, Hasidim, anything like that to happen. There was a very heavy pressure in the opposite direction to westernize, you know, and that sort of thing. So our hero grew up in, in this sense in a tumultuous time from the Jewish perspective because he lived to be 80 years old, from 1785-1865. And he's, he was born in this area, I forget the exact town, you know, it, in that province. And those are very interesting Jews because they're all Polish Yidden. And a generation before, they'd be Yiddish-speaking, nothing German whatsoever. They'd be Polish, and the, you know, because that's an area of Poland. Uh, and, you know, just like the Ramah, you know, the regular Polish Jews, all of a sudden they're not. They're uh, ruled by, uh, you know, the Germans, by the Prussians. And if you're Jewish, you try to get along the best you can, right? In other words, if it pays in business to learn German, so now you learn German. If it pays to, you know, if the government pressures you to get an education, sooner or later you get an education. It's that kind of a thing. The question is, what is the impact on the Frumkite? And that's what I'm going to deal with today. Now, the person I'm talking about, Yaakov T. Mecklenburg, was born in 1785. He grew up during this tumultuous period. Uh, as a young man, the whole area is taken over by Prussia. Uh, the borders are changing because of Napoleon Wars. And he's from a from family. And, you know, his father was Talmud Chacham and all that sort of thing. And he's the one who naturally takes the learning. But in this area of Prussia... There were, there were some yeshivas in schools and things like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, the big name was Rabbi Kivager. I know you've heard of him. Uh, and he had some shaykhs or Rabbi Kivager. It's not clear to me exactly where he learned, but it doesn't even matter. You know, in traditional Orthodox environment, 
And he obviously, you know, took to, uh, to, to the learning and all that. But like many people, he didn't want to be a rabbi. And he went into business, became a businessman. Like the Chayyotov. And for like 20, 30 years, I don't know, for a long time, he was a businessman. So here's this guy. But a Tamachacham. Like the person in the yard side I was talking about today, you know, a Friedman. He was a Tamachacham. And uh, I'm sure, you know, he's holding and learning and has his Sedarim. I mean, what does it mean to be a businessman in Prussia, in, in that part of the world in the old days? You know, you, uh, you, it's a merchant and buying and selling and import and export and that sort of thing and learning the regulations. Uh, the Jews in Prussia always been treated very weirdly by the government and the king of Prussia, who was there for a long time, like from 1792 to 1835 or something like that, 1836, that's a long, long time, was Frederick William III. Now, I know it doesn't mean anything to you, but he's famous in, in Prussian history. He was a real jerk and a big momster and a big anti-Semite. He really hated the Jews. On the other hand, Prussia was a, a, a government run on logic and, uh, what shall I say, uh, bureaucratic uh, uh, you know, rationality. And so the bureaucrats actually were more enlightened than the king. And uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, the Napoleon Wars, around 1812, the bureaucrats kind of forced the king to ease up the burden on the Jews and give them, if not emancipation, but relative emancipation. And so uh, the Jews were subjected to all kinds of regulations, but it used to be they couldn't move anywhere, they couldn't live anywhere, they couldn't do this, that, and the other. A lot of those stupid, crazy regulations were removed, even though many other restrictions were still there. This is the world in which he grew up. Um, I would also say that the Jews in Prussia, like elsewhere, in the 1800s, wanted to eventually to get civil rights. That's a whole story by itself, but there was a profound transformation that took place in the mentality of the Yekas in the early 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s, as a result of the French Revolution and a whole bunch of other things. And for the first time, they really, really cared about getting citizenship and civil rights. Because before that, the Jews had, had been living in there, but they weren't of there. They didn't expect to be citizens, because they're not Germans. But all of a sudden, now they said they're Germans. And the German governments, especially Prussia, basically said, if you want any rights, you've got to change the way you dress, and you've got to change the way you talk, and you've got to write in German and not in Hebrew. And, uh, you know, notice they demanded all kinds of reforms from them in the sense of social reforms. Uh, and little by little, the German Jews did do this, especially in Prussia. You know what I mean? They, they got rid of the payas, they got rid of the beard, they changed to European dress. What you think of as the Yaki starts from this era. era, era. Uh, they learned real German instead of Yiddish. A whole bunch of very interesting, profound transfer, social transformations took place. Uh, and he lived during this period. Now, in the area he lived, which is Prussia and Posen and the eastern part of Poland, that was the last holdout. That's where Judaism and a lot of old-fashioned ism still held out longer. But sooner or later, things changed. And eventually the government said everybody has to go to public school. That's right. And the uh, parents didn't want it, and the government forced them. And so huge social transformations in terms of acculturation culturation took place during his lifetime. Uh, so, you know, this is just an interesting period to, to live in. So you're a Polish Jew, and now you're becoming a Prussian Jew. But what does that mean, and how much Yiddishkeit do you give up? Now, the king, like I said, was a real hilarious. As far as he's concerned, he's extremely anti-Semitic, extremely anti-Judaic which means he was a Protestant, 
all the kings of Prussia were like this just about. They were strong Protestants, and they hated the Jewish religion from a Christian point of view. Even the last Kaiser who lost the First World War, I can't believe it, I read once, in the 1920s when he was in exile in Holland, he wrote a whole thing attacking a reformed rabbi, arguing over matters of theology, Old Testament, New Testament, things like that. It really bothered him, you know. So that's who these Prussians were. Now, um, I mean, I Mecklenburg, the Empress living during this period. This is the era, everything I just told you is the, is the environment of Rabbi Kiveger. Because he became rabbi in Prussia in 1791, that's where he remained for 40 years, 45 years. From 1791 to 1836, till he died. So uh, that's, if you want to know who Rabbi is and the world in which he lived, it's that kind of world. Uh, and there's a famous painting you can see of Rabbi Kiveger. If you go online, you'll see it, you know, on a market day in Posen, and you see there's a lot of German stuff taking place, and uh, there's Rabbi Kiveger walking with two Dayanim dressed in old-fashioned Polish clothes, not, not, not uh, German clothes, because a uh, rabbi, they, were, you know, they didn't bother so much. But the regular Balabatim, they did. This is who, this is the era in which we're living. Now, if Jakob C. Mecklenburg was a businessman, he had to learn the German well in order to get along, and he had to have an orderly mind. I make that point many often in my talks. That's very interesting. You deal with different gedolim, those who had a career in business. I mean, a genuine career in business. Not like the Archa Shulchan was a joke and his wife ran the operation. Talking about the Chayotim, people like that, who really were businessmen, they bring a certain logical approach to their... Uh, you can't be a business person without keeping track of your accounts, right? And running a business in an orderly way. If you're a disorderly person, the business won't work. And uh, they brought this... Very often, these kind of people brought their uh, qualities to their learning and their writing, which he did. Now, um, as happens, because it was a pure capitalism, there was a boom and a bust in the economy, and eventually went broke. You know, to, because of economic cycles. Listen, I'm speaking to you today in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. Nebuch, nebuch, how many businesses are going to go bust as a result of this corona business? You know that, I know that. These stores and small businesses and restaurants, it's, it's a bummer because nobody can go anywhere and you lose your customer base. And who should even know about it? So those are the vagaries that can happen from a magefa. They had magefas at that time. They had other economic, uh, you know, uh, uh, bad happenings. And so when you read that so-and-so went broke or something, it's not necessarily a reflection he's a bad businessman. It just means that he ran into a bad cycle. Now, at that point... This is like 1830 or so. So here's a person who, uh, he was born in 1785, so he was 20 years old in 1805. So he spent about 25 years as a businessman, right? A from guy, learning, all the rest of it. He could be a rabbi. He had, he had enough knowledge. He had smicha from somebody. It doesn't matter. Uh, but that's not what he wished to do. But now, at the age of, let's see now, 45, that's right. Age of 45, he had to become a rabbi, a rov. Now, he became the rov in Königsberg, Königsberg, which is an extremely interesting and unusual situation. Königsberg is in what they call East Prussia. And I know this, none of this means anything to you. But if you ever look at an old map before the Second World War, and certainly before the First World War, you'll see that Germany, Prussia, stuck in like two fingers into Eastern Europe. One finger at the top going straight and the other finger at the bottom going more to the southeast. It really looks like that. I, it sounds, you think I'm making it for fun. It looks like two fingers. And these two fingers were Prussia. 
and Königsberg is the capital of the top finger of the area along the Baltic coast. Today, Königsberg is a crazy place. It's in Poland, but it's part of Russia. Don't, you know, this has to do with Putin and things like that. Uh, so it is actually a city that belongs to Russia. Kaliningrad, they call it, because the president of the Soviet Union once upon a time was Kalinin. It used to be called Königsberg, which means the king city. And it's a well-known Jewish place. Uh, and it was the capital of East Prussia. It's a provincial town, but it had a famous university. And uh, actually the most fa- And you have a Jewish community there. In the 1700s, the Jewish community would be five, six, seven, eight hundred people. In the 1800s, it grew to be 5,000 people. Uh, that's, who, that's the numbers you're talking about. In the 18th century, uh, the university in Königsberg, which is a provincial university, not a main place, had the number one philosopher in the world there, Kant, Emmanuel Kant, who lived all of his life in Königsberg. He made it famous. Uh, in the 19th century, also was a big center. I'm mentioning this because here's a small town, but it's a, it's, it's a headquarters of Prussianism and of German culture. And if there are Jews living there, they're going to be profoundly affected by it. And there's a, a big university, or let's put it this way, an important university in this relatively small town. The whole city was 60,000 people. And that's going to be mashpil in the Jewish community, whether you like it or not. As a matter of fact, I would say that the Haskalah began in Königsberg, or at least in Berlin and Königsberg. Those who know details about the history of the Haskalah movement knows that it came in three waves. And the first wave in the 1700s, in the time of Moses Mendelssohn, shall we say, is referred to as the Haskalah of Berlin. But really it was Berlin and Königsberg, because the Jews, I don't want to go into too many details, but the Jews who were involved in the Haskalah were going back and forth between Berlin and Königsberg, let's put it that way, which is all part of the kingdom of Prussia. They're not close, they're not far, but they're not close, but they're two distinct communities, and they were profoundly affected by the Enlightenment movement. And, uh, matter of fact, the Haskalah literature began in Königsberg, the Ma'asef, and those famous or infamous newspapers and things like this. And so the whole idea of a, of a what shall I say, a Haskalah in the anti from sense really goes to Berlin and Königsberg. At the same time, there were many in the community, they were old-fashioned from Jews. By that I mean German Jews of the 18th century variety, which they didn't know much, but they kept stuff. They didn't know much, but they were very traditionalistic. And as time went on in the 1800s, uh, intentions uh, increased between different sets of Jews, I'll call them left-wingers or right-wingers, those who wanted to go to the left and those who didn't. And this expressed itself in two general areas. One is cultural, one is religious. Culturally, I mean, who wants to have more German and, and Gaish education? And there, they little by little won. But then there's the other area of religious. Do you want to bring in Reform Judaism? Königsberg is a pace of a battle over Reform Judaism. Do you want to change the sitter? Do you want to make an organ? Do you want to have a Gaish choir? And all that sort of thing. Which is really based on the idea that you're allowed to change the Jewish religion, the Torah laws aren't really Torah laws, and the Bible isn't really real, and all that sort of thing. I'm saying this all for a reason, you'll see in a second. And here you ran into something extremely interesting, and that is vitally to do with the career of Yaakov Mecklenburg de Kabbalah. The king of Prussia, well, let me put it this way, the Prussians wanted the Jews to move to the left and Germanize all the rest of it. 
One way of doing that is to introduce Reform Judaism. But from the Gaisha perspective in Prussia, the problem with Reform Judaism is it keeps the people Jewish. Okay? Hear what I just said? If somebody switches and becomes a modern left-wing form of Judaism, at least it's a form of Judaism. They identify with the Jewish people in one form or another, as bad as it is. What the king of Prussia wanted, Frederick Gong III, was, yes, the Jews should move to the left and, and see it through to the final conclusion, which is to convert to Christianity. That's the only thing that makes sense. Anything short of that is a brachal vatol. And so, the more, for evil purposes, he wanted, the king of Prussia wanted Judaism to remain old-fashioned and orthodox so that it'll be so disgusting to the Jews that they'll get the heck out of it and become Christians. You, you get what I'm saying? So, he would not allow an organ in a synagogue in, in, in Prussia. He would not allow changing in the sitter. He would not allow, you know, uh, any innovations. He would not allow the, the, the bimba to be moved and all the other things that reform wanted to do. Why? Was he a firm Jew? No, the opposite. He's like, keep it orthodox, keep it stupid, and then any intelligent young Jew will say, I don't want a piece of this junk. I'm become a Christian. And I hate to tell you, he was not unsuccessful many times during these years in the first half of the 1800s, many Jews converted to Christianity because they couldn't find a way to express their Judaism in anything other than the old-fashioned way, which they found extremely distasteful. So isn't that funny? The king of Prussia, who hated the Jews, ostracized Reform Judaism. This is not known, usually. Uh, many people think Berlin is the headquarters of Reform, all the rest of it. For many years, it was not that way because of the government and the rules. And there are famous episodes in history of earlier form where they were not allowed to have a separate reform minion and all the rest of it. But for the, the reason is what I just told you, because the king wanted uh, to, to look old-fashioned and stupid. So that means you had a very weird situation. In Königsberg, for example, the um, in order to, uh, how shall I say, reform the education, the Jewish community brought in this guy, Frankholm, in around 1815, and something like this, a guy who was a Moscow, to change a cheder type of learning into, what shall I call it, uh, you know, something between Betafil and Salman Shechter, like that, something between that. You know, much more modern kind of thing. Well, uh, the from element in the community complained to the king, this guy's trying to reform the religion. And uh, the Prussian authorities did not, gave him a hard time, and it didn't work out. So it's not a shot that there was a revival in Frumkite, it's that the government cooperated with the traditionalistic elements to block the efforts of those who wanted to introduce a more modern form of Jewish education in the hope that the existing form of Jewish education, that's called TITA, would be such a turnoff that the parents would send their kids to a Christian school and that they would eventually convert. Just a screwball, fascinating situation of Jews in, in Königsberg and places like that in the first half of the 1800s. Now that means that when the rabbi in the city died in 1829 or whatever it is, and they needed a new rov uh, to be the abbasin of the community, they had to get a from guy who was orthodox committed to not changing anything. Not necessarily that all the members of the board of directors were like that, quite the contrary. But since it was the king at that time who had the policy I just described, so the king is going to warn somebody who, uh, you know, is from. So it'll be a turn off, and that the members of the community will convert to Christianity. And that's how they chose 
Yaakov C. Mecklenburg to be the rabbi there. First of all, he was a Talmud Chacham, that's number one. And number, he certainly was. And number two, a guy who's been in business in Prussia for 25 years knows German well, right? I mean, for business purposes. So he can speak the language. He didn't have a secular education. He didn't go to college. He didn't even go to high school as far as that. No, he didn't go to high school at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, I doubt if he went to elementary school. He went in the old-fashioned way. But uh, from life, circumstance, from being a businessman, and for a while he was a successful business person. So he is sophisticated, relatively speaking, and he can read and write German, you know? So it's good enough. It's good enough. And he became the Rav there and remained there until he died. From 1830 to 1865, for 35 years he was a rabbi in Königsberg, as the community was doubling, tripling, quadrupling, and even more, because uh, people were moving there, became a center of the Industrial Revolution, and the Jewish community expanded relatively to a, a large group. I think they, in his time, rose to four or five thousand from less than a thousand, from about a thousand. So this is an interesting dynamic when you talk about rabbonim. As I said before, it depends when they lived and where they lived and what kind of community were they at. And was it a static community or was it a growing community? And it's very interesting. You find these Rabbonim that, you know, when they started, it was a community of 300. And then by the time he finished, it was 3,000, which just means people are moving in all the time. That has a vast uh, effect on the community. I live in Baltimore, which is a community in my lifetime. It's certainly a from community has grown by leaps and bounds. You get people moving in from all over the place. And that affects things. Me'idach Gisa, sometimes you find the opposite. Somebody was a rabbi, started a town with 3,000, but by the time he's finished, it's 300, because they're going the other way. You know, all these things matter if you're really interested in the inner dynamics of the historical evolution. Now, here you have somebody who was there for a rov for 35 years. He's a from guy. He was chosen because he was an Orthodox guy. But that doesn't mean the Balabatim are from, and that doesn't mean, you know, they went that direction. They had to appoint a rabbi because of the royal policy, as I said before. And so, uh, as the 1830s and 1840s and 50s went by, the general trend in a large part of the community was to move to the left and to want reforms. Okay? To want reforms. And eventually, eventually over the course of time, they brought in somebody to be a Magid. That's how they used to do it. To be a Magid. Uh... uh but the ter- this is this is something happened in Germany in Prussia. The term Magid, preacher, preacher, is an old fashioned from term, you know. And the idea of a Magid would be like the Dumner Magid, you know, to give to give speeches. A Rav doesn't give speeches in the old school. Uh, I think you know that the Av Basin they give him Shabbos Agol and Shabbos Shuvah and that kind of thing, which is not a speech. And the Rav. Is involved with, you know, Paskini Shalas running the basin and perhaps teaching yeshiva. But speeches people want. And uh, they had a magid, okay? Now, the old fashioned magid was the old fashioned magid. In Germany, especially at the time I'm talking about, very often the person chosen to be magid would be reformed. And he would use that role uh, to be the person literally who gives the sermon on Shabbos. So I know it sounds strange to us, but I'm taking you back to a time that's different than when you live today. So you have a community. The Rav is a Orthodox guy, but the person who gives the sermon is not the Rav because it's, not, it's beneath the dignity to give a sermon on Shabbos in those days. And uh, instead, you have a prediger, a guy would get up and give a speech. But it could be a long... In the 19th century, they like long speeches too. So a guy would speak for 45 minutes or an hour on Shabbos. That's right. And uh, it'd be in German, and it's going to be to the left. You understand? Everything's going to be left-wing. You follow? If you had a the type I'm talking about now, 
He said, you know why we're getting coronavirus? Uh, because God is angry at us. We're too bodade. We're too isolated from the guy. And we should integrate more in society. So when this is over, we should take this little sign from heaven to assimilate more. You know, yeah, you know that kind of spin. Because uh, you can spin anything any way you want. And so he had his, uh, over the course of his rabbinate, uh, he had constant quarrels and fights with the left-wing element, which tried to use the, um, the preacher, the Magid, to be like a competing rabbi. And over the course of time, after 1836 or 37, the old king died, uh, the government became more, the Prussian government became more amenable, shall we say, to reform Judaism. And that's why in the 1840s and 50s was the acre years of the reform. And all over Germany, everywhere, everywhere, uh, you know, reforms in the synagogue and services and sitter and organs and choirs and all kinds of things like that were introduced. That's when it happened after the old king died. And uh, Königsberg was one of them. And eventually they had, he had a famous uh, uh, reform guy, Zelschutz. And, uh, you know, he brought in confirmation and, you know, all the things that, they, that the, the reform were doing. And the Rav tried to block him. And that's who Yaakov C. Mecklenburg was. He was there for 35 years, constantly fighting against changes. And according to the Constitution Committee, the rabbi has a veto over changes in the ritual. And he's vetoing everything. But if you're vetoing everything, then you're not being very successful. I don't know if it happened in his time, but by the time he died, the community was clearly uh, broken into two parts, Reform and Orthodox. And the larger part, frankly, was the Reform. And that's the way it remained until Hitler. That Königsberg, after he died, had two communities. Like Hirsch, you know what I mean? Had two communities. And one was the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Reform community. Maybe Reform is a little too strong of a word. And more like Conservative Judaism. That's what he had, Liberal. Conservative Judaism. You know, mixed seating, the, the, the organs, the, the, the choirs and all that stuff. Uh, that was the main shuls. And, there were, and the uh, frum was a small shul, but they were uh, rich. So, uh, you know, it's just interesting how these developments turned out in, in Königsberg. Became a well-known community for this reason. Okay. Now, everything I just said is like half the story. <laughs> uh, because otherwise, who cares who this person was? It's, I didn't say anything special about him. But... He, the person I'm living in, was therefore uh, highly uh, attuned to the goings-on during his time. And uh, he was therefore dealing with the forces of acculturation and the forces of the Haskalah. Now, in the area he lived, in Königsberg and East Prussia, precisely because the Jews were a little more traditional than elsewhere in Germany, because they'd been Polish uh, not long before. Right? They've been Polish Jews. So precisely because of that, they, they, they had more of an a, a old-fashioned traditional Yiddishkeit to them. So issues that wouldn't have mattered in Western Germany did matter in Eastern Germany, especially in the context of the Haskalah. And here I go to um, Bible, Tanakh, literally the Chumash, which I said, what are you talking about? And the answer is that... Uh, one of the interesting aspects of the Haskalah of Berlin, associated with Moses Mendelssohn, was the renewed interest in the Bible and the attempt to uh, recast uh, our understanding of, of Tanakh in general and the Chumash in particular 
along the lines of very strong pushup shot, a rationalistic shot, and do away with uh, the agarita type approach, the mystical approach, and the fafrumta approach. Okay, now um, what are you talking about? Uh, in real yeshiva circles throughout history, uh, people not in the in Tanakh. I mean, obviously you got your chumash and rashi, you know, like that, and so forth. But you know, not really. And let's be honest, even today, this week is Pasha Tzav. A week later, you're going to totally forget about Pasha Tzav. You're going to think about the next Pasha. Very few people actually go and study the Chumash or the Tanakh. But Ian, uh, it's not common. And uh, it's not common. Certainly Yeshiva circles. Seminaries more. But even there, you know. And so, now I know there's exceptions to this. In Israel, you have some groups now. But generally speaking, this is the old-fashioned traditional approach. And the reason is because by us the Torah Shabbat and to understand the Gemara on the and the Talmudic literature has always been considered uh, a more significant operation. Even though the Gemara says whoever learns Mikra is Mida below Mida, whoever learns Talmud is Ein Lachamida Gedolamizu. You know the Gemara and that sort of thing comes out on top. Fine. So uh, in the history of Jewish Bible commentary, therefore, has been up and down. In the Middle Ages, of course, he had to some degree. But by the time we get to the 16th, I'm just sitting here myself. Can I think offhand of a significant uh, Chumash commentator in the 1600s? Not as I'm sitting here, you know. Not as I'm sitting here. Maybe I'm forgetting, but you know. Uh, in the 1700s. Uh, not not usually, okay? I'm not talking about somebody with Russia, say, for an embrace or whatever. I'm talking about, you know, as a as a sustained Bible commentary, you know, like David Ezra, like Rashi, Ramban, and so forth. Now, um, when, by contrast, among the Christian civilization, obviously the Bible is eager. They don't have any Torah Shabbat. And to make a long story short, because there's a lot to talk about here, Mendelssohn, for a whole bunch of reasons, got interested in um, issuing a Chumash with a new peerish, which is called the beer, and which he executed with a bunch of uh, helpers. This was controversial in its day. And he published it like in the 1780s, around the time Mecklenburg was born. And basically, if you ever seen, I've seen it, it's, you know, it looks like a regular Chumash. It's the Chumash, it's the uncle, it's Rashi. That's right, it's Rashi. And then it says beer on the bottom. And then it's a, and, and, and the Chumash is translated into German, in Hebrew letters. Now, uh, what is the nature of the beer? Nothing uh, objectionable, really. It's a very push-up shot, rationalistic kind of interpretation. It's from, despite what you hear, it's from, you know, it's very much on the uh, Ibn Ezra, Raubach style, you know, that sort of thing. Definitely on the left wing of the from spectrum. You know, it's a Forno style. But, you know, that way, it's a push-up shot oriented kind of uh, enterprise. Now, in its day, for a whole bunch of reasons, there'd be a hood a camera and all that, but... You know, in its day, it was controversial. But Be'etzim, it wasn't. You understand? Be'etzim, it wasn't. Uh, and therefore, in another time and a place, once the original controversy went away, it wasn't controversial. Reminds me a little bit of Steinzalt. You know what I'm saying? You know, the Be'etzim, it's okay. It's, it's, it's just a politics. So, uh, all I can tell you is, 20 years later, by the early 1800s, from Jews were reading the Mendelssohn thing, and they certainly didn't see it as an unfrom business. Now, Mendelssohn and the Maskilim after him 
praises to the skies, and they undertook to uh, write whole come pirushim um, the uh, whole Tanakh in a much less from way than Mendelssohn had done, and the idea was to return to Pashup Shat, and when I say Pashup Shat, I mean that in an anti Gemara sense, in an anti Medr sense, and this and the spirit, Konigsberg was the headquarters of this. The spirit was the the, the following expression. You can't go by the Tanoim Amram, they're a bunch of dummies. The way they read the, the, the Chumash, the Tanakh, is through magic and Shadim and uh, Mesim and Talesim, and they don't understand Hebrew, and you look at the uh, Gadatas, and especially the Drushas. I spoke about this once here in podcast long ago. If, if you look at the Drushas, like they'll get a halacha from an extra hey, or a vav, or because a word is repeated twice, or, you know, these are highly artificial ways of reading the text. But a lot of laws, a lot of halachas come from those kind of hermeneutics, as they call them. The shlosh essay, midish and the dresh and similar uh, reading strategies. This is the way, in the Chazal, in other words, it seems like they're reading the Torah in a very haphazard way. I can't even say they're decoding it because it doesn't seem like they had any kind of systematic code. They just, you know, shoot, a, shoot from the hip. And uh, this has to do with the question, of course, uh, which is not Pashat. You know, are they Taka making this up, which is the opinion of some in the in the from world? Uh, in other words, the, the halachas are known, Chaz Hashem just told the Moshe, and when you see something connected to a Pasuk, it's, uh, it's not really the way Hashem said it, but it shows you it could be uh, read that way, or no. When Hashem said to Moshe, the, the halachas, he said, look at the hey, look at the vav, look how the word is backwards. You know, look at the extra dollar, you know, that sort of thing, like the way you're reading more. That literally is a verbatim uh, representation of what God communicated to Moses. I mean, you know, th- this, these are issues that were uh, debated once upon a time in the firm world, precisely in the period of Mecklenburg. That's my point. What I'm trying to say is that Rise of the Haskalah gave, um, involved a critique of the Tanaim Amaraim as. Uh, proper interpreters of the scriptures. And if you're a regular Moscow left one guy, what you say is like this, throw all the Tanoi Mamrim out the window and just read the Bible, not the way the Christians do necessarily, but from a Jewish perspective, but uh, let, let's read it, uh, you know, uh, freed from uh, Talmudic uh, Meshagas, as they would see it. You understand? This was the attitude that certainly developed after Mendelssohn. Re- and all of it is based on a uh, very anti-from critique, as I said before, that whatever you find in the Talmud, the Medrash, the Tanoim Amroim, which we regard as the authoritative things, are really uh, that of defective uh, readings of the Bible. Now, uh, most people aren't in a position to even discuss what I just mentioned. If you're a regular Shiva guy or a Rav once upon a time somewhere, like that, you're into Gemara, you're into Shulchan Aruch, you're into you know, Halachas. If you ask the questions about, you know, the uh, drashos of Chazal and, uh, you know, the dictic part of it or, uh, you know, whether this sounds like it's logical or not. And I don't know what to say. So I don't know. That's just an I'm from thing. Get the heck out of here. And uh, I'm uh, not interested in, uh, you know, in, uh, you up you a Get out of here, you know. No, you can't respond to it because I'm not trained to. On the other hand, if you're living in Germany in the 1800s, the Balabatim are no longer yeshivish. Even the from Balabati, even the traditional ones, uh, they don't have yeshiva education anymore. Uh, and they'll read this stuff and they'll be affected by it. 
And they'll talk and say, you know, it is a strange reading. You know, to read this, maybe the rabbis of old were talking backwards or something like that. In other words, all these non-from ideals will get into your head. And this was the reality in Germany and Central Europe, in, in Bohemia, Austria, Hungary, place like that, in the 1800s. Okay? And it spread elsewhere. Uh, and so uh, it's one of the main bases in terms of the intellectual argumentation of the left-wing Haskalah and the reform movement and later the conservative movement. This is where they're coming from. They'll say, you know, our reading of the Chumash is better, our reading of the Tanakh is better. Uh, from our German uh, Gaisha professors, we get a, a sounder approach to uh, the Diktuk and to the plain meaning of it. And from our archaeological historical investigations, we get a better idea of the historical context. And, you know, the Chazal, we're just making this stuff up. That ultimately is the reason why the Reform and Conservative go off the derech, and they say you don't have to follow the halacha, because basically they disbelieve in the Ghazal. So it's literally, it's literally apikursim in the sense of the Talmud, which is Maya Hanali Rabbonin. You know, it's the apikursim, not in the sense you don't believe in God, but you don't believe in the rabbis, which is the Talmudic definition of apikurus. This is the world that once upon a time existed, and uh, as I say before, uh, most people in the firm world didn't know how to respond to it, and therefore ignored it. Which is the case today, right? Which is the case today? Uh, these kind of issues are still around, but the most successful from strategy the last two hundred years has been to ignore. I know it sounds funny what I'm saying, but in the broad sense of it, it's true because if nobody pays attention to it, then you know, like Aristotle said, then the tree didn't make any noise. I remember uh, I was once in uh, Milwaukee, I guess, long ago. I've been there a couple times speaking, and this guy came over to me afterwards, I think it was Milwaukee, and he was a member of the synagogue that I was speaking in, he's obviously a big left-winger, you know, one of those types, a big left-winger. I'm going back 20 years ago, and he said, Rabbi Katz, or something like that, uh, how long, and you know, he was big into Bible criticism, that kind of stuff, you know, one of those, uh, like the Avi Weiss type, I guess, and you know, how long do you think you know, the yeshiva world will be able to ignore, uh, I don't know, Bible Christians or this, that, and the other. Uh, and, uh, and I said, well, you know, they did it now for 200 years, so maybe they go for another 200 years. And he was so shocked at the answer. He said, you know, you might be right. <laughs> he didn't have an answer for that. But if you don't want to simply ignore, then what do you do? The answer is that this uh, challenge that I'm describing, which is an intellectual challenge, but was very much out there, uh, was perceived by some, and it led to a very interesting phenomenon of an orthodox return to Chumash commentary in the 19th century, uh, which almost all of it was based on an attempt to demonstrate, each according to his way, that the Tanan Mamrim knew what they're talking about. And then when they give these drushos in the uh, Gemara and the, and, and the Medrash, Medrash Halacha, meaning the Halachas that you and I live by, and based on their hermeneutical interpretations of the Chumash, because everything's the Chumash, of course, that they're not uh, made up, they're not baloney, and they're not uh, products of defective uh, scholarship, but on the contrary, they show an unbelievably fine understanding of the text of the Chumash, and that the Halacha that you're talking about really is in there in the extra hay, or in the extra vote, or something like that. Okay? And just off the top of my head, and y'all can see Matt is like the, one of the first of these. Just off the top of my head, 
you know, the the Yakov Tzim Mecklenburg and Shadal and the Malbim and Sam Spravel Hirsch and the Nitziv and Dover T. Hoffman, and I'm sure there are others. Some were more again, some are more known, some are uh, less well known. All these, Hirsch, I said, you know, were, were uh, uh, great Jewish scholars in the 19th century uh, in different places, each of whom uh, wrote a commentary in the Chumash, which is interesting, and did so, I would say, in general, with the overall intention, or among their main intentions, maybe not exclusive, to defend the Chazal as understanding the Hebrew language, the Lashon Kodesh, in such a way that their interpretations, in particular halachic interpretations, were sound and not forced. And Yaakov uh, Mecklenburg, who I'm talking about today, is among the first. Uh, and he, and it doesn't surprise me, because being a Rav in Königsberg, I don't think he had too many people to talk Gemara with. Uh, on the other hand, he did have the, 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 the traditional element and he was fighting with over the middle ground. In other words, the left-wingers are gone, and the right-wingers are on his side, but the middle is the one you're fighting over, the middle members of the community. And they were probably coming and saying to him in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, because these are people whose parents and grandparents had been born in, before the Prussians took over, so they still had the Yiddishkeit in them. And they'll say, how do you read the Pusik this way, you know? And how can you learn, from, you know, Balira, Balira, this and this, and then, you know, all these... So, ach b'yom rishon tashvi some b'teichem ach cholak. I mean, you know, come on! It says ach b'yom rishon tashvi some b'teichem. You should burn the chametz on the first day of Pesach. Ach b'yom rishon tashvi some b'teichem. Where did Chazal get this business? Ach means an Arab Pesach. You know that kind of approach. You understand that kind of approach. And the old-fashioned Talmudic way of explaining it to my monadino wouldn't appeal to these people. And so here you have somebody with a rov for thirty-five years, who put his iker kochos. I mean, he was a rov. And he did the Gitin and the Erev and the, you know, the Paskin the Shilas and the Taras Mishpach. I mean, he was a And he, he did Chosha Mishpah cases. I imagine he was a Rav Rav, okay? And he knew Shots and Postkim, a Rav Rav. That he was. And he corresponded with Rabbi Kibager and people like that. He did. But he put his main effort into Chumash. Isn't that interesting? And uh, he wrote a uh, big commentary in the whole Chumash called Haksava Kabbalah. And this has made his fame or not fame, depending if you know about the book or not. Haksav Fehakabola. Now, it doesn't mean Kabola like in the sense of mysticism at all. The title rather means Haksav, the Torah of Haksav Fehakabola, meaning Moshe Kibbal Tormi Sinim Besim Shuz Kames Kameim. The rabbinic Kabola, meaning the rabbinic tradition of the Torah of Alpeh. Not the mysticism, not Kabola like you're thinking, but Kabola in the sense of Moshe Kibbal Tormi Sinai, the Mesoro. So perhaps today we would have used the word Haksav HaMasoro. In his time they called Haksav Vakabolo. And it's a very, very interesting book. I have to confess, I don't use it too often. I feel bad about it. You know, as I said when I started today, maybe I'm going to criticize myself and look at it more often. But sometimes I do. And what he undertakes to do, and he's the first of many, is he's a Malbim before the Malbim. He looks at every word in the Chumash, and he, of course, knows the Chazals and the Gemaras and the, and the Michal, the Sifra and Sifri and all that. And he endeavors to demonstrate the amazing uh, versatility of the Hebrew language of Lush and Kodesh, which it possesses, and um, its ability to, um, what shall I say, you know, have very plastic and, and, and multivalent uh, meanings. And uh, 
to put to put in the simplest language for you, the listener, I would regard him as I don't mean to sound funny in this, but I regard him as a kind of Ari Kaplan before Ari Kaplan. And I'm talking about the Living Torah. Uh, one of the chumashes I like is the Ari Kaplan chumash, and the reason is because who's got the time to do all these uh, research things unless you make an effort, like I did last Shabbos with the Vayikra I mentioned podcast the other day. But ordinarily, you look in chumash, so you see a pasuk, you think you know the translation. But if you get the Arya Kaplan at the bottom, the Living Torah, you know what I mean? I recommend it to everybody. So he'll give you uh, a lot of different ways to translate that Pusik. Meaning, he'll see that uh, Rashi may render it this way, but the Sephorno translates the words literally differently. And sometimes he quotes Mecklenburg, by the way, not, not rarely, or Hirsch, or somebody like that. Meaning, don't think you know what it means when it says... You know, mina bukar mina tzon takrivus karbanchem. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You say, well, there's only one way to translate that. It's not true. It's just not true. Uh, you have a unimaginative understanding of the Hebrew language. But you say, well, what, what can it mean? Now, I'm not saying it everywhere, but you'd be surprised. A lot of words in the Chumash you think are translated like one way or maybe two. And it turns out, in the history of our tradition... There have been five or ten or fifteen different translations of it. And that doesn't mean that that comprehends the to- to total possibility of all of them. And so, as I said before, when you uh, get the Ari Kabbal Chumash, um, I recommend this. You know, when Shul's get reopened again, you'll sit in Shul and Shabbos, get the Living Torah, and, uh, you know, read through it and look at the bottom, and you'll see a lot of times the Pesach can be read in different ways. Uh, and that's all from, from, from sources. Everybody's talking about, you know, Ari Kaplan is all from sources. So the person who precedes him is uh, Mecklenburg, is Daksav Ve'akabola, uh, which goes, as, as I said before, in the Chumash. Originally, it was expanded, published in a smaller edition and expanded in an expanded edition. doesn't matter. The one you get today is the full business. And uh, the thing about him is that he, so very, very often, he will give a different translation of a word. And his objective, Objective always, his agenda is to show you that the way the Chazal read it in the Gemara or, or the Michal, the Sifra and Sifri, is not some Mishagas, but it's actually very fine understanding of the word. But it, in the process, you have a different, I can tell you, is you know, you have a different understanding of the Pasuk. It's always like, wow, I never saw it from that a- aspect. Now, uh, hold on for a second. I had to switch something here. Um, so, what was I saying? The problem you, uh, you had at that time was, as I say, trying to respond to these uh, uh, criticisms on the uh, the Joshas of the Chazal. And with Mecklenburg, uh, he, he does this at great length. You have always, at least I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you my experience. Whenever I do look at him or what's being brought down, it's always reading the Pasuk in a very different way. And it's always in conformity with the Chazal. That's his agenda, no question about it. It's an apologetic work. But nevertheless, he does with great skill, okay? And uh, he sort of like was the, uh, the, I won't say he showed the way, but he sort of led the way for the others. Because as they say before, the Malbim does the same thing, just more so. Sam Stranfield Hirsch does the same thing. Uh, that's why when you read the Hirsch Chumash, Again, you always see a different translation. One of the interesting things of getting the Hirsch Chumash is to look at the top, not the bottom. I'm not talking about the, the I'm talking about the, the top, not the bottom. And if you look at the top, the the, the way Hirsch translates, the Hebrew is different. You understand? It's separate from the bottom. 
and uh, the Nitziv is like that. He always wants to show you how the Chazal thing fits in. And Dovetzi Hoffman is uh, very much concerned in all that, uh, literally to defend against the uh, reform and all and, and so forth. So these works are all agenda driven. They're apologetic, but they're works of great scholarship. Um, and I would say the Kabbalah is among the first and perhaps the least known of all these. I think more people read the Hirshchomish and the Nitziv is uh, hot in the Yeshivas because the Nitziv was the Nitziv. And the Malbim has his own particular fame. Hoffman has been hot and cold. But uh, the only thing about Mecklenburg, is I just want to say this. He um, learned for a while with the Talmud of the Groh because Vilna is not that far away from East Prussia where I'm talking about. And I forget which one, the Aaron Chaim of Amchislov or somebody like that. He learned say so he he knew he wasn't far away from where the uh, where the where where the uh, uh, Groniks were, and the Vilnagon had shaykhs with Königsberg. By the way, the Vilnagon was in Königsberg when he was young man uh, traveling through. There's a famous uh, story about that. That's where he dealt with the university and all that. The uh, uh, Rebbe of the Vilnagon, believe it or not, uh, learned for a while in the University of Königsberg. I kid you not. I'm talking about not the Carbonator, the other one. Who am I thinking about? Is that the Pane Moshe? There's a carbonate and the other one. And uh, who was Rebbe de Vilnagon when he was young. And he studied botany. I was surprised to see this once. He he took courses in botany in the University of Königsberg, because that was the university nearest to uh, where the Jews were. It wasn't a Catholic university. And uh, you need botany for Zeroim. That's my understanding. That, you know, since he did Yerushalmi, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's Pane Moshe, isn't it? So he says, uh, so... Uh, he, um, you know, wanted to know what botany is, you know, when you do his drawing. Which is just interesting, by the way, you know, somebody in the 18th century to do that. And um, he also quotes a lot from Shadal, who Shmuel double who was a Moscow, but I would say on the extreme right wing of the Ascala. Uh, even though some of his ideas would, would be, uh, as we would say, to the off-the-reservation, Shadal, but, uh, you know, Mecklenburg knows how to quote, and Shadal was a, a super expert in Ivrit, in Lush and Kodesh, and Mecklenburg knows how to take the good and, and leave out the bad. No question about it. Uh, and so here you have people who, and the Malbim had the same agenda, by the way. And basically what they're trying to do is, is um, take the Moses Mendelssohn approach, but give it a very Haredi kind of slant. I know this sounds funny to the average reader, but that's what it boiled down to. To take this attention to the Chumash, because that's what they're concentrating on, because that's what you read every week. And he must have taught this in, in, in uh, his shul and in his community, and people ask these Moskilica questions, which they're entitled to do. And he really undertook to deal with them. I'm sure the pressure of the time compelled him to do this. Now, the the the, the, the Ksav HaKabot is, is, is very interesting, because one of the things he does is, he'll always translate into German, you know, like in Hebrew letters. So if he'll say a certain word, He'll say, well, I think it means something different. I think it means this, and it'll give you like the German. The problem is that's no good for the American reader. Now, I've always said for many years that uh, the art school should do it at Salva Kabbalah simply because then they would translate the German for the English reader. Now, there is somebody named Rabbi Elio Monk. I don't know him, but I saw that he uh, he's a, uh, obviously a yekif from the monks. That uh, he's on the one-man operation, he translated a lot of these unusual commentaries into English. Dalshech and the Orachayim and the Shla. And I saw he did the Ksavakabal. I never looked at it. And maybe he does that because he's obviously a Yaki, so maybe he translates 
from the German to the English. In which case, uh, you know, I don't get any money out of this. It's probably a good book to get. But you understand what I mean. A good art scroll or Feldheim or whatever, where somebody would um, uh, give a good translation. Look, the art scroll is doing the Drushes around and that kind of stuff. You could do worse than doing the Ksava Kabbalah. You would be very surprised when you read the Parsha through his lenses. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a great deal of original thinking. It's a most unusual way of approaching the business. And it's very nice. Okay, now, that doesn't mean you have to agree with it all. I, me, myself, and I, I bought a Kabbalah many years ago. I am ashamed to confess that I'm looking around. For, I don't know why. I'm looking around in my area where I keep most of my Chumash stuff, and I don't see it. And, I'm, uh, and I feel very bad. Because I'm talking Kabbalah, well, I can't find where I put it. Right? Uh, you know, once this podcast is over, it'll, it'll pop up somewhere. And I said before, I don't use it as much as I should. Maybe as a result of this, I'll take a Musich Moose and open it more often. Because he's he's very good. Now, it's unusual, it's idiosyncratic, and he has a highly uh, original way of reading the Psukim. But sometimes, it's, and you know, and I remember sometimes I didn't, I didn't agree with them. But very often, yes. And let me put it this way. It's wonderful to open the mind of the reader of the Chumash to the possibilities of the Hebrew language that you wouldn't ordinarily think of. I would say that the Ksav was sort of surpassed in a certain sense by the Malbim, who became much more famous, but the Malbim, and Malbim did it in a little more mechanistic way, as you know, the Malbim, who was a contemporary of his and a friend of his. As a matter of fact, he was his successor as the rabbi in Königsberg. Uh, the Malbim, you know, uh, systematically go, uh, give the commentary, not on the Chumash per se, but on the Sifra and Sifri and the, and the Chilta. Isn't that, that's what the Malbim is primarily on the Chumash. It's a commentary on the, on the Medish Halacha. And, uh, and the Malbim has this huge mechanistic introduction at the beginning of Ayikra, which he calls, what's he call it again? Uh, I forget the name of it, but it's this huge essay with 613 paragraphs. It's Ayel Sashachar, that's what it is, Ayel Sashachar. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. You want to be blown away, look at the Malbim's introduction to Vayikra, which is really an introduction to the Sifra. And, uh, you know, he has six and 13 paragraphs show how the Hebrew language really, really, really operates. And what these people like the Ksava, Kabbalah, and the Malbim are doing is mounting a general critique on the left-wing Maskilim and on the Reform, saying, you're making fun of Chazal, you are the ones who have a superficial dumbbell understanding, like a Christian professor or something like that. You think you understand the Hebrew language? You don't even come close to understanding the Hebrew language. And, you know, when you're scratching with your superficiality, you're making fun of people like the Ghazal who understood the profundities and the depth and the multivalence of the Hebrew language. And uh, if anything, it's a reflection of how stupid you are. That's the basic agenda of it. Now, he wrote in Hebrew, and obviously that means he's still an audience like that. Königsberg was a community in his time, as well, which a lot of them were moving to the left. But I'll tell you something interesting. I told you the community expanded. It's a port city on the Baltic, and therefore it had a lot of business. And East Prussia is right next to uh, Lithuania. So Königsberg is not that, it was in the, in the middle of East Prussia. So it's not right up against the uh, Lithuanian border, but it's not far away. Like I said, the Vilna Gaon was there and others. It's not far away from Lithuania. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that Lithuania, Lita, became headquarters of the Haskala, which it did, is precisely because it was right next to Germany, next, next to Prussia. And the, the border city between Lithuania and Prussia was Memel. But if you go another 50 miles, 60, I don't know, 100 miles, whatever, you'll get to uh, Königsberg. 
So it's not that far away. And all through the 1800s, Lithuanian Jewish merchants came to Königsberg to do business, and many of them settled there. And uh, therefore, they're formed now a funny situation. The Yekis are divided into the small Frum element and the larger left-wing element. The, fr- the rub of the whole place is the Xava Kabbalah, but a lot of people in the community are more to the left. Um, on the other hand, you have this new group moving in of Yiddish-speaking Lithuanian Jews, um, uh, m- many of whom are businessmen, and they're basically from guys. You know, I don't say they're super from, because they weren't, but they're basically from. And the question was, are they going to be mashpia on the community, as Mecklenburg desired, and move things in a more traditionalistic fashion? Or is the bad going to rub off on the good? Or the local German stuff and the university and the left-winger is going to be mashpia on the Lithuanian Jews and make them non-from? This was the tensions that was going on in the 1840s, especially 1850s and 60s, in the lifetime of Jakob C. Mecklenburg. It's just an interesting dynamic. And he was right, because there was a big uh, attraction of anti-from direction by the local Germans and the university was there and the great intellectuals there was uh, on the Lithuanian Jews that were moving there to make them on from certainly the younger generation. That is why, what's his name, moved to Königsberg exactly during this period. That's the reason. Yisrael Salanter. Yisrael Salanter, the famous Yisrael Salanter, who was from Lithuania, uh, ran away from Lithuania and lived for many years in Königsberg and other places Rabbi Saul Salanter is buried in Königsberg. <laughs> many people don't know that. He, he died late, many years later, in the 1880s, in Königsberg. And he uh, moved there. Uh, he wanted to get out of Russia for a bunch of reasons. And, uh, it's, but it's near Russia. It's right, it's right near Lithuania, Lithuanian part of Russia. And he wanted to be Mashpia. Rabbi Saul Salanter wanted to be Mashpia on the Lithuanian Jews that are moving to Königsberg to keep them from... And therefore, he was cooperating. I'm talking about 1857, 1858. For the last seven years of the life of Jakob C. Mecklenburg, he and Yisrael Salanter were cooperating on a project to try to move things and keep things in a firm direction, at least for the Eastern European Jews and hopefully for the um, the, the, the local Yekes that he felt they could be Mashpio. And those the left-wingers are what they are. You know, there's not, not much of a chance for them. But those who are not on the left wing and those who are in the middle and on the right, obviously, every extra ounce that you can give them a frumkite is a plus. And so these were two great men, and so they cooperated as best they could, you know, very well, to try to uh, build up the community. In the case of Rizal Salanter, what he did was he encouraged the Lithuanian Jews to form their own shul and their own chevrakadish and their own this, not to make a period in the community, but to say, listen, the Yekis are a certain type, the Litvaks are a different type. No, no tainas on anybody. Let's just have two, uh, you know, shoals, two communities cooperating side by side. And that's what they did. I don't have to tell you, Sro Salanta was not into Machlekes. Um, he was a great man. And so, it's just a very interesting place to be in the late 1850s and 1860s, in which you have um, these two great people. The style of Sro Salanta was not to write a, 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 a commentary in the Chumash. But the style of Yaxi Mecklenburg was. And as I said before... I hope as a result of what I'm saying today, you know, you'll go in the back of your shul wherever you're located because you probably don't have this in the house. And you'll see there's a savory Salva Kabbalah. I have to confess, I've been wait- I have an old one. You know, I bought it many, many years ago. I used to give a chumashir, a formal chumashir, oh, decades ago in somebody's house. And so that's when I uh, 
pick up all the different chumash things because then the uh, Monday nights I used to give it, and therefore <laughs> I always have to have new material. And uh, you know, Ksava Kabbalah is one of them, okay? Ksava Kabbalah is one of the sources of new material. Since then, I don't do it so much, uh, you know, once in a while. Uh, and there is recently the uh, most rough cook put out a nice block print edition of the Ksava Kabbalah. Not long ago, it's out in the bookstores. And I think it has a nice intro from Rabbi Kuberman from the Mechala, you know, the founder of the Mechala. I believe he wrote it. And uh, about the style of the Ksava Kabbalah, which is a nice style, if you like that sort of thing. I have to confess, I've been waiting for them to come out. Manukad. I was planning to go to Israel this summer. And one of the things I always look at is, uh, you're going to have this, uh, Manukad, that one. And one of them is the Ksava Kabbalah, which uh, something tells me it's supposed to should be coming out one of these days. Maybe, and that's why I didn't buy the most rough cook one, uh, which is out now, even though it's a nice addition. Uh, um, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but in in in, um, but frankly, I'm not going to have much time to look at it. If I had one with Dinakutis, I would like it very much. Uh, but this English one is probably very good. And as I said before, uh, the problem you, the English reader, will have is that when he brings these German words and he writes it in German, the Beschaffer or this, that, and the other, you know, so you don't know the German, most of you, right? So that'll be the one block. But it's only a little bit. Most of it's in Hebrew. You know, 99% of it's in Hebrew. But his initial, his, his different and original uh, translation, he'll give him these uh, German words. So really, 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 as I said before, you, uh, the, the art school would do a nice job if they if they ever choose to do that uh, on the Ksava Kabbalah. So that's uh, an unusual safer. The whole agenda of apologetics and trying to defend the, um, what should I say, the from tradition against the Moschilla critique, the reform critique, is a timepiece. Uh, the world today is so yeshivish that these issues don't even pop up. You understand? Uh, we're, we're like in the old days. People were, learned Chumash, you know, just uh, in between Gemara. <laughs> and, uh, if, and, and if somebody gives an a, a interpretation from the Medrash, people are fine with that. You know, nobody says, is that the right? Is that make sense? And, you know, you don't do that. And anyway, who's got the time? Is partial week? Is this week? Is, is Sav next week? We're holding by Shemini. Nobody ever gives any time to uh, think about what's going on in the partial week. Not really. And there's exceptions to what I'm saying, but I'm speaking generally as a society. You know this and I know this. But uh, there are times and places in Jewish history when the partial of the week in depth, the Eun, is more in. And, uh, uh, Maybe, I, I, I don't see it in Baltimore, but you know, maybe I'm out of it. But uh, sometimes it comes back, and when it comes back, people will pull out the Aksava uh, Kabbalah. That's, that's what I'm saying. So uh, I have to conclude with a great story, and that is that uh, towards the end of his life, he was in, the shul was, uh, I think, burned down and was rebuilt or something like that. Uh, and they, in other words, they dedicated a new synagogue building, which wasn't so common in Eastern Europe. And they want to make a big deal out of it. And, uh, uh, you know, big splash. And they want to get a good speaker for the occasion. And who was the best speaker in the 1860s? The Malbim. I'm talking about as an orator. You understand? He had a reputation as an orator. And uh, so they hired, you know, so they paid him and he, the Malbim came. So you have quite a scene. Here you are, like 1860, whatever. And there's a Yaakov C. Mecklenburg, who's almost 80. And we saw Salanter, 
who's uh, oh much younger, you know, uh, would be in his fifties, and uh, the the speaker is the Malbim, who's also about fifty something, and uh, what is and there's a crowd, and the question everybody was thinking like whenever you have a speech on such an occasion, how's he gonna is he gonna give preference to the Rav? Is he going to be a preference to Israel Salanter, who after all was just a visitor to the city, even though he's living there full time? And is he going to talk about this? You know, how, how's, he going to, how's he going to play the politics of it? And the story goes that the Malbim got up uh, and he said, Today we're dedicating a new shul. Bilam referred to this Matova Ohalecha Yaakov Mishkanosach Yisrael. Matova Ohalecha Yaakov Mishkanosach Yisrael. And then he turned to the crowd and he says, this building now that we're dedicating is Ohel Yaakov. This the tent of Yaakov T. Mecklenburg, Yerov. He has sat here for 30 years or more, Yom of Elila, writing his great Sefer, Ksavah Kabbalah, and like Yaakov Avinu, Ish, uh, you know, Ohel, what's it called, you know, the Yoshev Ohalim, and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, so this is, this building is like, a, is like a tribute to Ohel Yaakov, the Ohel Yaakov T. Mecklenburg. And then, he said like this, Mishkanosecho Yisrael, which means that besides Oel, there's a concept called a Mishkan. And we have here in the crowd today, Yisrael Salanter. And he's a Mishkan because he never stays in one place. As opposed to Yaakov was uh, for 14 years in the Ohel, you know, in Shane Baver. And he sat there learned Yom Belayla. There's some people that are peripatetic. They're always moving. Because Yisrael Slantin never stayed anywhere. He was in Vilna, he was in Kovna, he was in Berlin, he was in Königsberg, he was in Halberstein, and he always was moving around. And so, that's a different Bechina. He's Mishkinosech Yisrael. But wherever the Mishkot is, that's the Shechina's there. And that's Yisrael Slantin. So, everybody said, I guess, that's a good speaker, <laughs> you know. He knew how to dot the I's and cross all the T's and uh, say it just right. So, um, that's who's the art set I think is today or tomorrow. And... If you want to get something out of it, maybe you'll take the trouble to get a hold of the Ksaba Kabbalah. By the way, I'm no question it's online. It must be on Safari and that kind of thing, you know, if you're interested. And really, when it comes to Vayikra, uh, it's uh, very interesting if you're interested in the nitty-gritty. What does it mean, min ha-bakar, min atzon? I mean it, you know. And why does it say, bakar, min ha-bakar, you know, chazal say, lahotzis ha-trefa, and how do you see it in the word bakar, which he says has to do with plowing the ground, and, uh, you know, animals that are trafis uh, are not healthy. I don't know. It's, 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 like I said before, it's a certain style. And it's one of the Shiva and Panama Torah. With that, we should all have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com